As humans, we're naturally driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search. Match. With Indeed, when I was looking to hire someone, it was so slow and overwhelming. I wish I had used Indeed. If you need to hire, you need Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform, with over 350 million global monthly visitors according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And Indeed doesn't just help you hire faster. 93% of employers agree Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other job sites, according to a recent Indeed survey. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash podcast. That's Indeed.com slash podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Hi, everyone. It's Steven Schleicher, and you're listening to the Major Spoilers Podcast issue. Holy crap, this is issue 580. We are on the countdown to issue 600. It's going to be closing up rapidly. Probably, probably by the end of the year, we will hit issue 600. 600 episodes of the Major Spoilers Podcast. Holy crap. How did we make it this far? Well, we made it this far because of you. Fine listeners like you. Listeners who give us those five-star ratings over at iTunes, people who comment on the Major Spoilers website, please, everybody. There's something over there at the Major Spoilers website that you have an opinion on, a thought on, something that you want to say. Head over to Majorspoilers.com and read all of those fantastic articles. You can read about the upcoming San Diego Comic-Con. You can go and listen to other fine podcasts. You can go and check out all. You can go and check out the Major Spoilers poll of the week. Who would win in a robot battle? I, I kind of teased it last week, not not very well, apparently, because everybody's kind of scratching their heads going, I don't get it. So I've got a MakerBot, and on this MakerBot, I can print out a lot of things. And I printed out these two little robots that you then plug uh, a couple of wind-up uh, motors in their bottoms. <laughs> yes, a couple of wind-up motors in their bottoms. They are identical except for the color. Now, here's what I'm going to do. Next week... I'm going to pit these uh, robots against one another. I'm going to wind them up. I'm going to send them right towards one another. And one of them is going to knock the other over. Last robot standing is going to be the winner. Your job between now and next week is to head over to Majorspoilers.com. Vote in the Major Spoilers poll of the week. Who's going to win in the robot battle? Will it be the robot red or will it be robot blue? So far, uh, Pierce says red is law, red is life. Ingrid says, uh, plainly robot red. Red is the best color. Look how passionate and aggressive he is. How could he not win? Go ro robot red. Kyle says red is the color of victory. The great Nate O says blue will be the winner. His cool, calm fighting style will make him unstoppable. Blue will cool down. Red is no time. Oh, it will cool down red in no time. And then red will be taking a canvas nap. Blue rules. Red drools. So here's what's going to happen. You go and vote now. And then next week, the poll will lock. You can even use your comments. I mentioned uh, using the comment section. What I'm going to do is I'm going to record these two robots going at each other. And you will see who the winner is. And you will be able to see if you're right or wrong. This is a little bit different than in the other polls that we, we've done in the past. You know, we had fictional polls of who would win in a fight, Scarlet Witch or Zatanna. There's no way to prove that. This one, you're going to have some definite proof on. And you want to have your bragging rights to say that you were right or you were wrong. I'm going with Robot Blue. Right now, as of this recording, 55% of the uh, major spoiler nation, the spoilerites, 
are uh, voting for Robot Blue, 55% to 45%. Very close race. Somebody's going to have bragging rights next week in this definitive major spoilers poll of the week. I know what you're thinking, Stephen. This episode sounds quite a bit different. It is a little bit different because this week we are all rolling out the Nerdtacular 2014 in Salt Lake City, Utah. Where we will uh, be part of the Frog Pants uh, big event that goes on out there every year. I've been a part of it since, I want to say like 2007, 2008. Must have been 2000, oh, must have been 2007. Maybe even earlier. Yeah, so uh, maybe, oh, maybe not 2006, but definitely 2007 we've been a part of that. And uh, so we're going out again. We're going to be on a bunch of panels, and I know some of you have asked, Hey, Stephen, where can we hear, where can we see, where can we be a part of this Nerdtacular thing if we are not going to Nerdtacular 2014? Well, first of all, go to nerdtacular.com. That's where you're going to find all of the information. And then coming up on Friday, I've got a post that will link to all of the live uh, audio. Uh, Let's see if I can give you an address. I know that... I know that Alpha Geek Radio, alphageekradio.com is going to be streaming everything. We should get our own copies of all of the uh of all of the files and I will post those into the Major Spoilers Podcast Network feed in the appropriate shows and also in the main feed so that you can listen to those. Uh there is a critical hit Major Spoilers panel that's going on so people will be able to ask us questions there. Matthew and I will be doing a, a panel on comic book collecting and grading. Very excited about that. Zach will be moderating a panel on cosplaying. I will be moderating a panel on uh, getting into comics. And that one features Scott Johnson, who does web comics, uh, Brian Dunaway, um, a couple of, uh, um, I forgot their names now. Uh, One of them works on the Justice League of America 3000, the GLA 3000 series. Adriana Ferguson is going to be there with uh, talking about minor acts of heroism. If you are a fan of Critical Hit, we'll also be bringing some sketchbooks. So you want to look forward to that. Those are pretty cool, and I know of several of you, many of you, hundreds of you, actually. My Twitter feed blew up the day that I talked about it. Asking if they're not going to Nerdtacular, where can they get a copy of the sketchbook? Well, guess what? We will be offering those for sale online after the event, sometime in mid-July. I definitely will let you know about it. You'll be able to order them, have them delivered right to your home. We also have some postcards, and we're also going to make a giant poster of the cover of the sketchbook. And that cover by Adriana is fantastic. Almost dropped an F-bomb there. That's how good it is. What else? Oh, I mentioned that we're able to last this long, almost 600 episodes of the Major Spoilers podcast, because of some of our fine sponsors, like Tweaked Audio. Head over to tweakedaudio.com. Check out their wide selection of headphones, their headsets, their earbuds. Stick them in your ear. They sound great. Great customer service. Great customer service over at tweakedaudio.com. When you go over to tweakedaudio.com, when you find the earbuds or the ear phones or whatever that you like the best maybe you're going to buy a bunch of them because you want to give them to friends use the code major at checkout and you're going to get one third off the price it's tweakedaudio.com we thank them for sponsoring this installment of the major spoilers podcast also if you want to help us out even more amazon.com over at majorspoilers.com there is that little button for amazon.com just click on that you can buy whatever that is that whatever it is that you want to buy Maybe you want to pick up a, a a Jack Kirby New Gods collection. You can do that. It's going to cost you the same price. A little bit comes back our way. And it helps us continue to do things. It, it helps us this year 
to get everybody involved in Critical Hit and the Major Spoilers podcast and Munchkin Land and Zach on Film and what else? Munchkin Land, Zach on Film Top 5. A lot of the podcasters are able to go to Nerdtacular this year because of your help and your support. And if you want to get a little uh, something something for your help, you could go over to members.majorspoilers.com. I don't have time, unfortunately. feel really bad about this. I just don't have time. Ran out of time preparing for Nerdtacular to get the uh, the new bonus tracks up before I left, but it'll be up there right as soon as we get back. Ghostbusters this month. Matthew and I sit down, and you can listen to us um, provide a real-time commentary to Ghostbusters while you watch at home on your own copy of Ghostbusters. The 30th anniversary of that should be a lot of fun. So yes, this is a very different episode of the Major Spoilers Podcast. It's an interview episode. And uh, I went over to uh, to meet with a lawyer, and we were talking about Jack Kirby and the Jack Kirby case. Now, this is another one of those where I simply set the recorder down between the two of us and have a conversation, so it's not the most awesome audio in the world. But there's some great information. You find out a little bit of copy about copyright law and those kinds of things. So uh, take a listen, and thanks for listening to the Major Spoilers podcast. The Supreme Court is had a couple of big uh, cases over the last uh, couple of days that have got some national attention, but one case in particular that's currently up for appeal for review of the Supreme Court is the Jack Kirby uh, heirs taking on Marvel over who owns the copyright of characters like Thor, um, the Incredible Hulk, maybe even Spider-Man. Uh, anything that Jack Kirby had a hand in in creating over at Marvel. And so I thought today what we'd do is we'd take a little bit of time, we'd look at this case in depth with someone who knows law. And so uh, joining me today is Dr. Melissa Hunsicker-Walburn. She has a law degree in telecommunications law and policy. And a lot of this stuff, Melissa, thank you for, for joining us. Thank you for having me. A lot of this stuff is just all policy-based stuff. I mean, this is simple contract law, but how come contract law gets so, if it's a simple contract, you know, you agree to something, you sign something. Why is this now been going on for years? Why is this now all the way up to the Supreme Court? Uh, well, there are a lot of things that have happened in this case that make it a really good model for understanding the dynamic nature of employment, mm -hmm. employment related activities, and then how those ha happen, not always in parallel with what the law is doing. And the Kirby case really exemplifies how that can go very, very badly, um, depending on what side of the, what side of, what, what kind of stakeholder you are in all this. Okay, case. so let's let's start with, with Marvel's side. Mm -hmm. Marvel says that Jack Kirby uh, did all of his work as a work for hire. What's work for hire mean? Work for hire means, work for hire is a legal term of art that is associated with copyright law that would, instead of bestowing upon the creator of the work those inherent copyrights, it instead has those rights reside or rest in the employer. So basically, if the work for hire doctrine says, because of work that you're doing within the scope of your employment for an employer is under the, the purview of employment, then you don't retain rights as creator of mm -hmm. the information or the content, you don't retain those rights. Those rights are all vested in your employer because they are paying you to do the work that you're doing. So he was getting, you know, a, a weekly salary or monthly salary plus benefits at the time. If, I mean, I don't know what the original terms were, but because he was a full-time employee, everything he did was, was owned by 
by Marvel, or that's Marvel's stand on this, because it's like, well, we're already hiring you to do whatever work we're telling you to do. That is Marvel's stand. Um, well, that has been Marvel's stand at some phases of this litigation. Um, but it's interesting if you look back at how um, some historical documentation characterizes Jack Kirby's employment. Typically, most people would evaluate the facts of the fact that he didn't have an office space. He often worked from home. Um, he was paid not on, a, not on a salary basis, but rather he was compensated um, on a per page of mm, product mm -hmm. basis. Mm -hmm. um, he had to purchase his own art supplies, so they, they didn't provide those things for him. So that, think about if you were yourself doing a project for somebody, but they didn't give you an office space, they didn't buy your ink pens, they didn't provide your... Computer. Those are some of the modern ways that we evaluate whether something is a work for hire or independent contract. Yeah, so I would, you know, based on what you said here, mm -hmm. you're just getting paid per page mm -hmm. and we'll send you the work. Mm -hmm. That sounds like freelance work to me. Exactly. And that's that is the entire basis for the Kirby's claim is um, those were not work for hire kinds of products. They were freelance. And so um, at whatever point, there was a copyright. It did vest with their position as it did vest with Jack Kirby and that under section 203 of the Copyright Act, um, you have the right after 25 years of the execution of a grant um, of a copyright to terminate that transfer. And that's what they are trying to do. That's what now, this litigation started out but as. But this is the 1976 mm -hmm. uh, termination, right? So right. they, they had... Or, so they had 25 years after 78, or they had until 78 to terminate? No. After, you had to wait the 25 years after. Okay. So that would have been nine or uh, 2003, mm -hmm. which is probably when this all started, right? I mean, this, uh, this has been going on for, geez, it seems like a decade. I mean, mm -hmm. and just so that listeners understand, mm -hmm. this is the same kind of uh, lawsuit that the Kirby estate is doing against Marvel, that the Seagulls are doing against uh, Warner Brothers for Superman. Uh, yes. And um, it hasn't gone up to the Supreme Court in that case, but uh, the, whatever it is, the regional court, the uh, circuit court, circuit court, court basically said no on, on the on the Warner Brothers uh, Seagull case. Mm -hmm. um, let's take a step back for a moment and talk about copyright. Mm -hmm. At what point is something copyright? The minute that it's created. The, the, the way the statute reads is the minute it is fixed to a tangible fixed medium. Yeah. Um, Comic book page. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And so, um, yeah. And that's a pretty traditional standard. Um, I don't think that that has been um, widely challenged. I mean, the, the nature of the interpretation of what is fixed medium mm -hmm. is where we see the most activity in that interpretation, but not... Um, whether it does or doesn't fix it, creation that has that has typically not been um, a, a hotly pointed or a hotly contested point. Um, but what's also interesting in this Kirby case is so far what we have here is these have gone through um, through appeals and repeatedly the Kirby heirs have lost. And the most recent basis for their their losing, if you will, is that the court has said, you know, never mind if it was a work for hire or not. Um, we're going to say that um, because it is a work for hire, you never had the copyright to begin with. Mm -hmm. Because it was a work for hire, you never had a copyright, even at its moment of creation. Right. So, therefore, you can't revoke or rescind any kind of transfer of those rights because they were never your rights to begin with. 
Um, and, and, and again, going back to some of the historic language, th that's really, it's, and it's all contained in the brief. Um, and these are um, what we call friend of the court briefs that mm -hmm. are being submitted right now to the Supreme Court, asking it to review these issues. Mm -hmm. And the Supreme Court has con conferenced and publicly expressed some interest in taking this up. Um, I'm not, I'd have to look and see what their deadline is for making that decision. And they, they grant cert very rarely, frankly, it, considering the volume of cases they are asked to consider. Uh, most, most of them, your, your likelihood of getting denied review is much higher than the, the possibility that you'll get reviewed. Um, and you're more often going to get reviewed by the Supreme Court if you have different federal circuits doing different things. Mm -hmm. um, because if it would suggest that at the federal circuit court of appeal level, there is disagreement about how to apply something, yeah. then those tend to be cases that the Supreme Court takes up a little more readily. That's the one thing um, that this case does not have going for it, because the circuits have actually tended very heavily to apply what is called the instance and expense uh, test mm -hmm. to determining whether something is or is an employment or work for hire. And, and what is that? And what's um, that test? Well, the test is um, basically evaluating um, the instances um, and expense that a, a person paying for a product invests in the person creating the product. And some of those kind of distinctions have go back to a Thurg Thurgood Marshall um opinion that uh, I don't see which, which year that was, but um, basically it looked at commissioned work and it evaluated that if the commission, the person commissioning the work mm -hmm. also has a substantial creative interest yeah. um, in the creation of the work, then it will still, um, it would still support work for hire um, kinds of rights. But um, the way that the author of the brief has has framed this is, you know, he said, you look back at, again, the, the behavior, the facts of how Jack Kirby behaved, and Marvel will say everything that Jack Kirby did had a lot of Marvel's input, a right. lot of Marvel's guidance. Mm -hmm. um, it wasn't simply him going to his house and bringing us pages that we published. Um, he would come back and meet and confer with us, and we would make decisions that some people would say that's how the Marvel method was right. developed, um, which is kind of a, you know, I, the brief says geographic shapes with squiggly lines, <laughs> character development. Um, and so, again, Marvel would say they were heavily involved in that process. So even under the commissioning instances and expense doctrine, this would still be um, a work for hire. Interesting. And, um, and again, Marvel... The, the, or excuse me, the Kirby family would say, and you still weren't supplying him office space. You were still doing it on a per product basis. And um, I think what is kind of interesting is at some point, um, regardless of who is at the helm of Marvel, there seems to be some, there seemed to be some recognition that how they characterize Jack's employment was going to impact their ability to retain these rights because what happened was over time, the endorsement language on the checks that they paid him with changed. Mm. Um, it began with. Uh, so do we know? Well, I mean, mm -hmm. Jack Kirby left, you know, Marvel in mm -hmm. the late 70s, I believe. But they were concerned about that even at that point to mm -hmm. say, hey, even though we don't have a 
a contract with this guy. We need to rework the yeah. back of the check, mm-hmm. and probably not just Jack, but yeah. everybody yeah. at Marvel. And I'll read that. It says, by endorsement of this check, I, the payee, Marvel, acknowledge full payment for my employment by magazine management company and for my assignment to it of any copyright, trademark, or other rights or related to the material or including my assignment of any rights to renew my copyright. So at some point, they really were essentially putting on the back of this man's payment some kind of contract term Mm -hmm. that in order for him to be paid for his work then, his really only choice was to cash the check and be paid and thusly, by their argument, agree to these terms. Mm -hmm. Um, I, I also use this case to talk to my students about contract law because we would call this um, a unilateral contract. This was these were not terms yeah, it's he not negotiated. Negotiating. These were not terms he negotiated. And so there are a lot of things when you look back at those kinds of facts that support these the the characterization again of whether he was working for hire or as a freelance independent. Mm-hmm. Um, I think those are really material sorts of things. Okay, so take off the take off the emotional aspect of this mm-hmm. case, especially in this part right here. Mm-hmm. The letter of the law mm-hmm. makes this very cut and dried. Kirby signed his checks. Mm-hmm. Kirby cashed the checks. The back of the checks said, you're giving up any claim that you have on anything that you're doing for us mm-hmm. by endorsing this check. Mm-hmm. And so the letter of the law would say, well, you endorsed it. That's your signature. You should know how to read. And that's it. Mm-hmm. This seems a little shady. Well, I think it. I, think I mean, it I'm is. not saying that Marvel is shady, but it just mm-hmm. seems a little. Uh, again, if you want to sign it, if you want to sign that check, then you need to abide by what's what you're signing. Right. You need to. You need to be fully aware of you know what it is that you're giving up. Right. You know, I. Yeah. I mean, I can come up with a ton of metaphors, but um, <laughs> uh, yeah, you know, it's it's certainly. The court would say it is Jack's responsibility to understand what Jack is or isn't signing. Right. Um, that said, you know, I, I'm not sure to what extent many of us um, pay, att- pay a lot of attention to what is. Well, the end user license agreements mm-hmm. in video games or, mm-hmm. or pieces of software that yeah, we, we install, just, any of those kinds of things that we have on our, our stuff. It's just like, sure, whatever. Give me my money. Give me my yeah, whatever. I just need to move on with my life. Is this kind of typical practice? Or is this odd practice? I think by today's standard, this would be odd practice. Back then, uh, I think that this was probably such a new and emergent kind of of thing that this was probably very typical, which is, I think, why you're seeing these kinds of um, lawsuits for some of these historical kinds mm-hmm. of characters, mm-hmm. um, because they were created at, at a time where things happened, pardon Pardon the characterization, but just a little more sloppily. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, or, or maybe not sloppily, but with a lot more trust. Um, you know, sure. I think that there was a lot. Well, but you got to remember. I mean, even back in, even back in at the time of Jack Kirby, comic books are considered kitty fair. I mean, we have cereal box publishers uh, printing comic books because they needed something to keep the, the printers running. So it was a lot of times just considered trash. And I don't think, and you know, go, going back. If it was 1968, 69, 70, 72, whatever, mm-hmm. and you're drawing 
comic books about a guy that transforms from a mild-mannered scientist into a raging, rampaging Hulk, no one would ever think that that's going to be worth billions of dollars in intellectual property. Mm -hmm. So, yeah, there could be, and again, in that time, laws hadn't been finalized. Laws are still being shaped and developed. Mm -hmm. So it may have been very okay to say, well, let's try it and see what happens kind of mm -hmm. Kind of an attitude, mm -hmm. right? Until somebody challenges it, of course it's right. Well, as I, I sort of think it's interesting, and and I I believe it's in the brief, but you know, it's interesting to me that it hasn't been played to significant. If let me put it this way, if Marvel was putting on the back of its checks, you hereby give up all your rights. Mm -hmm. To me, that suggests Marvel understood that he had rights. Yeah, and well, that's why I get into this little. Yeah. it's a little shady. Yeah, and so it's kind of interesting that the court has gone to this work now. Never mind whether the parties really understood. Never mind what the parties understood or right. how the parties considered their relationship. Right. The the courts have really just kind of taken a step back and again relied on this um, instance and expense standard and and basically has said, you know, we find that all of this was done at the expense of Marvel. Marvel mm -hmm. paid for it. Marvel. Um, Marvel is the reason that it was created. It was um, pursuant to an assignment by Marvel with Marvel's products and brands specifically in mind. And that was out of the August 2013 um, opinion by the Second Circuit. Okay. And so, um, it's it, again, I think it's interesting by now that um, the court really is looking exclusively at that instance, which, by the way, that's also in the brief. The brief would say that is not the only standard. Mm -hmm. It has just become the standard that all the circuits are applying. Mm -hmm. um, and and I think it's interesting that the brief says, we're not sure where there's authority that this became the exclusive standard that had to be used by all the circuits, mm -hmm. which also suggests that maybe it's just a little easier for the circuits to apply. Maybe. And I mean, they get, you know, the, the, the court system is just flooded with mm -hmm. these kinds of cases. Mm-hmm. Um, the Supreme Court gets, what, 5,000 appeals a year or something staggering. like that, and they can only look at somewhere around 150 a yeah, year. Yeah, it is staggering. Mm -hmm. let's, let's go back to the Founding Fathers for a minute. Mm -hmm. When they were developing copyright and patent laws, mm -hmm. what was the intent of the copyright law when it was originally when it was originally set up and, and the intent of what the, the Founding Fathers wanted to do with, with that? Um, without going through an extensive discussion, but... Copyright is an interesting um, type of intellectual property right mm -hmm. because when you compare it and contrast it to patents, trademarks, um, trade secrets, and then you have copyrights, copyrights are interesting because um, they are one of the kinds of intellectual property that are identified in the Constitution. Mm -hmm. Some of our other institutional property constructs are entirely statute-created, statute right. Congress-created, leg right. legislated. And, and copyright isn't, which does suggest that very early on, it was intended that the, the innovative product, or the, excuse me, the intellectual product of someone who is a creator, an author, mm -hmm. um, was designed to be protected. Now, um, when we talk about this in my policy class, we, we contrast what some of the underpinnings of that protection were at the time. You know, if you consider what it would have cost to publish something and right. the time and expense, you know, if you're writing a book when you're typesetting, there's a huge opportunity cost for your time in production. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Um, that that time and those efficiencies are certainly less costly now, but that was 
absolutely the kind of protection the Constitution at least envisioned giving authors is because it does take you um, so much time and so much expense and opportunity cost for your creative product, we still want to encourage creativity and innovation. And so we are going to give you rights going forward to reward you um, for for your creativity. Yeah, for your work. So this right. was, was this Jefferson that put that in? Was that his uh, wording on the copyright? I, I can't remember. I, yeah, I, I want to say so. Jefferson for some reason. But yeah. at the same time, the founding fathers realized that copyright shouldn't be indefinite. No. Right? They basically mm-hmm. said, there's a time where it should tough. become, pu- public, it should become domain. public domain. Yeah. And, and it was and, and the, the, uh, the thought process, at least historically, when you look back, is... Um, Reward the author, encourage creativity, mm-hmm. make precedent for others to want to be creative, being able to predict that they also will, will be able to reach, you know, achieve some kind of return on their investment, but also understanding that over time, um, the public needs to be able to benefit from um, the art and create, creative mm-hmm. world universe that is created from these innovations. And so at some point, it should become public domain. Now, what is interesting um, when you look at the way we've moved forward technologically, um, you would expect then, if if all of that is true, that we want to just make sure that authors are at a minimum able to recoup their opportunity cost for the for the the innovation. Then, as productivity has gotten leaner and easier and cheaper and faster, mm-hmm. you might then expect that that. Time, time period, period yeah. between creation and public domain to become shorter. What, what was and the, it has not. What was the original? Wasn't it just 25 years? Yes, uh, yes. And, and regardless whether the author was alive or dead, right? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And then, so in 1934 was the first revision to the copyright law? Yes. Where they basically said life of the author plus 25 yes. years? Right. So you look at, and this is why so many, um, so many works that were put out there uh, prior to 1934, are now in the public domain. Mm-hmm. So, you know, you can go find a, a classical piece Sousa. of... Yeah, John mm-hmm. Philip Sousa, perfect example of yeah. that. Uh, you can go and find in some in some instances, and, and this is why DC Comics is able to do the series Fables, mm-hmm. uh, Bill Willingham is using all of these characters that are in public domain. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, you know, that seems right. In 34, they said, well, let's extend that a little bit further because, you know, the families need some some benefit because if the author or the creator was the provider for the family and now he's gone. How does the family, you know, mm-hmm. quote unquote survive? Right. Um, and then that seemed to work for a long time. Uh, certainly the, the, the Hemingway estate has benefited a lot uh, from that. Good example. But then it changed again. What was the next one? At, uh, well, the next the major Bono. one is the Sonny Bono mm-hmm. case, right? Where it's basically, what is the, so Sonny Bono, people may not remember Well, maybe people do, listeners do. Mm-hmm. You know, a singer, Cher, Sonny and Cher, Music, yep. later turned into a politician. Mm-hmm. Um, really crazy. I mean, I don't know what people, honestly, I don't know what people were thinking back then. I mean, here you've got a, Sonny Bono becomes a senator. Talk about pork barrel. Yes. I mean, if you're worried about. You've got, uh, you've got, uh, uh, you got the gopher from the love boat becomes a senator. Mm-hmm. And you've got, what's his name? Not Cletus. Maybe it was Cletus from um, Dukes of Hazard also becomes mm-hmm. a senator. Cooter. Uh, Cooter. That's who it is. Cooter. Mm-hmm. What is the why is the Sonny Bono case or the Sonny Bono legislation? Why is that such a big change, especially for companies like Disney? Because technically, Mickey Mouse created in 1928 would have fallen before the 1934 copyright, 
And certainly Disney, when he died, would have, um, you know, 25 years after that, would have put it right around 1970, 1980, when Sonny Bono uh, decides to push forth legislation to change copyright law yet again. Right. Well, there were a lot of things that happened with the um, Copyright Extension Act, but um, basically it, it put all of the... Um, it, just, it was just a major keynote shift back to the production houses or the publisher, mm-hmm. be that a music company, be that the video maker, Disney, be that a book publisher. Um, and it's, it's very interesting because that also set the stage then for a lot of very, very um, large scale transactions that occurred that pro- were probably encouraged by the, mm-hmm. by the advancement of that legislation, legislation, excuse me. When you look at um, you know the price that Disney paid, which is four two billion yeah, yeah, for, for their Marvel. character mm-hmm. franchises, um, none of those values would have been as valuable right. prior to right. the recharacterization of how the survivability of some of these right. rights. So what is what are the rights now? I mean, is it just it's seventy five years, right? It's the life of the author plus seventy five years. Yes. But yes. but what is it now? Because you know Stan Lee. It's I mean Stan Lee's still alive. Mm-hmm. But Stan Lee is not Marvel. Marvel is a, a, a C corp, right? Mm-hmm. It's it, it's recognized by the government as its own mm-hmm. breathing entity. It is. And so, are we looking at now the life of the company plus seventy five years? Is that the way it is? So as long as there's some form, as long as there's some little old man sitting in a in a corner office somewhere with a sign on the door that says Disney or Marvel or whatever, even though they're not doing anything with it. That copyright is still in effect? That is my understanding. And um, it's it's a very good example of not to take this offline, but when you look at um, another piece of recently, um, you know, the Supreme Court also addressed healthcare mm-hmm. in a very, mm-hmm. very big decision. Yeah. And never mind about that decision, but at the core of it for some people is this question of how how many rights should a corporation be entitled to like right. as an individual should a corporation, a corporation is a legal entity that mm-hmm. has long been understood mm-hmm. and recognized. But at the point that we've started to see corporations become right holders, right. Meaning that they are treated so that, and, and I see this in other places that I teach in too. Like when we talk about do corporations have a right to free speech mm-hmm. um, that for some of us, we would typically say that, um, the Bill of Rights, those rights enumerated, right. the right to be protected from search and seizure, mm-hmm. those were rights intended to be um, bestowed upon citizens as individuals and that right. corporations weren't envisioned to be citizens. Right. Um, but we're certainly seeing activities coming out of the court and elsewhere that have, I think it would be hard to argue that it, the, that hasn't been reframed a little bit, that corporations are increasingly being given rights mm-hmm. like citizens and the copyright extension and its application to the copyrights that corporations now hold, I think, is one of those areas. Um, what? So, you know, if Mickey Mouse had been in public domain, and a lot of people, you know, mm-hmm. Sonny Bono, Mickey Mouse copyright mm-hmm. decision, um, really changed the nature of how these works are protected or not protected indefinitely. Mm-hmm. Basic indefinite protection. I guess they're, what are they, trying to start legislation now to take it out to 100 years? Yeah, you know, they... This is a dynamic, um, you know, I've, uh, I'd have to look, okay. I'd have to look. I think I, I know that they're monkeying around with it, but it's Every almost year. like, 
you know, let's make this an indefinite copyright. Mm -hmm. At which point, you know, nobody then benefits from Mickey Mouse as a character or Spider-Man or the Incredible Hulk, except for Disney and what they're able to license. Um, You know, it's... What is the benefit of... Let's just, again, Mickey Mouse. What's the benefit of Mickey Mouse going into public domain? Well, I think for some people, they would say um, it's the creative opportunity. Or, you know, if I can put Mickey Mouse in a mashup, mm-hmm. or I can, if I'm a 13-year-old who wants to take Madonna music mm-hmm. and set it to Mickey Mouse and Disney images... And then put it on YouTube for the world to enjoy. Don't criminalize me for doing that. Right. Um, and that's really kind of the debate is at some point, because these are widely, you know, these are iconic images. Right. right. Um, they, yes, they are owned by Disney, but they, they have also been woven into American pop yeah, culture. Into, into our culture is part yeah. of who we are. And so at some point, society feels like an ownership you know it's mm-hmm. like i don't but i mean beyond beyond the the the, the daycares that can mm-hmm. put the mickey the the disney characters on their wall without fear mm-hmm. of being mm-hmm. somebody could go in and yeah they could go create their own mickey mouse cartoon mm-hmm. but even if the company is still around walt disney is a company mm-hmm. unless there's some control over that can it hurt a brand if you if something goes into public domain can't the fact that somebody puts um, there's a great, I think it's Wally Wood uh, did a uh, uh, parody, in quotes, a uh, strip of all these Disney characters doing lewd acts. Mm-hmm. And it was protected. And it's very famous, mm-hmm. very famous. But at the same time, if a lot of people were doing those things, it hurts the brand itself. It does. And and is that part of the argument then? It is. And, and that actually kind of then crosses over a little bit into trademark mm-hmm. law. Because, you know, some of these Im- images um, have multiple rights. Right. And so you have multiple statutes then that you can apply, um, you know, if you don't have a right, you know, like copyright's unique because it also protects you not only from the use of your image, but from people distributing it. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, there's a whole different set of rights. But trademark um, would would be an area of law where you have the tarnishment issues. Mm-hmm. Um, if, if, if something is diluting a brand mm-hmm. um, or somehow, um, you know, diminishing its value, then you would certainly have um, issues in trademark law. Sure. Now, on a case-by-case basis, entitle you to seek litigation. But they'd have to do it on a case-by-case basis. Coca-Cola does it all the time. McDonald's does it all the time. Yeah. Um, Disney, I'm sure, does it all the time. It's interesting because there are, there's like a, a couple of Mickey Mouse comic strips that are actually slipped into public domain that people have reprinted because it's a historical reason to go back and look mm-hmm. at these. If you go back and look at the old uh, Fleischer Superman cartoons, those are also in public domain. So you can go to the, you know, the grocery store and you'll see these old Fleischer, you know, it's 100 cartoons on a VHS or a DVD. Mm-hmm. And it's all because these are in, in public domain. But mm-hmm. I guess my, and I kind of flip flop back and forth and kind of being devil's uh, no. advocate in a lot of our discussion. Mm-hmm. Um, the benefit of being able to put those old Fleischer cartoons, regardless of the quality onto a DVD to buy is that it continues to promote that brand. It, it continues to promote that character. It continues to promote mm-hmm. that company. So I would think that 
and, and I've had this discussion, I don't know with you, but certainly with my students about fan films and Star Wars and how the Star Wars fan films have helped promote and keep Star Wars as an mm-hmm. ongoing interest uh, for Lucasfilm for years. Whereas, um, you know, you see something with, with Mickey Mouse being shut down or taken down, it kind of creates that, that negative block. So I can see some real benefit of things being open for people to mm-hmm. remix. Mm-hmm. Um, that's the Lessig, right, is uh, mm-hmm. yes. who wants to, to remix everything. Mm-hmm. What are the Kirby, what's the Kirby estate want out of, out of this? Just money? I mean, that's, that's the kind of the bottom line, right? They're like, we just want our fair share of the work that Jack created to help you build a, an empire. Yeah, you know, I, I tend to look at it probably a little more romantically. <laughs> um, that Jack also, you know, and again, like most history, sometimes you get the feeling it's told by the victor. Right. Um, but there are certain things, I think, that speak for themselves and are open to interpretation. Mm-hmm. And um, certainly, I think, for the family... It would be hard to ignore the the money piece right. and, the, and the value of what it is worth. Right. It's a big chip. That said, I also think that there is um, there's an emotional thing here, too. Mm-hmm. Um, the the ascent of Stan Lee, um, the fact that they were partners at some point, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. and Stan, you know, es- escalated to points of power and control within Marvel, um, and, you know, Jack... At some points, you know, you'll you'll read articles where people talk about, um, you know, Jack, though he is producing the Fantastic Four, um, you know, he couldn't get appointments right. with executives. Right. Um, he wanted a contract and he couldn't get anyone to talk to him. And mm-hmm. so I, I would imagine if if I were a Jack Irby, Kirby heir, um, for me, it would certainly, you know, you can't ignore the money piece. But I, I think it's also a bit of vindication. Yeah. I think it is. You know, you treated him badly, and now right. you, you're you're financially exploiting and continue to financially exploit his creative product at a time when, like you said, these were kitty. Right. Kitty. This was a kitty product, mm-hmm. and um, certainly it's become something bigger than Jack Kirby ever could have imagined. Mm-hmm. And I, so I think for them, you it's know, a little again, vindication. I think there is a little bit, and I, and I'm, you know, I, I even take the liberty to say, probably rightfully so. I think I would probably feel a lot the same way that, you know, you kicked him around, you wouldn't give him a contract, you tinkered with his, mm-hmm. his checks in mm-hmm. a way so that you could go ahead and, and imagine. And even though I'm sure they couldn't have imagined it would be what it is at some point they imagined some kind of right dispute about right. these. And, and that some, at some point they at least were willing to hedge their bets that this was going to be successful enough that they wanted to hold rights exclusive to him. And if I were with their, their heirs, I would, I would probably take exception. And, and so if they win, not only is there a monetary payout, but they also get a portion of those rights. I mean, they will, they, they won't have, I mean, this isn't putting Spider-Man or X-Men or, you know, anything no. that Jack created into public domain. No. That's not what nope, this is nope, about. Nope. They're just saying that, Hey, we want our portion of the rights, whatever it's deemed to be. I know with the Siegel and Schuster case that at one point, um, part of the Superman rights, were going to revert over to the Schusters. I want to say, I forget which, right. which side of the family that was on. And so the, you know, the, the advantage there would be that now we as the Kirby's uh, estate can license these characters to clothing manufacturers, posters, mm-hmm. you know, whatever, whatever place that we want to license it to and get a portion of those proceeds going forward. So it's not just, yeah. it's not just a one-time payoff. It's yeah. an ongoing, we own the rights and we can decide what we want to do with these characters. Absolutely. And I think too, um, when you again, look at some of the history of the, the real nitty gritty stuff, because like I said, this is, 
contentious now. It was contentious then. Mm-hmm. The parties were just a little bit different. Yeah. Um, it was Jack himself and, and then the powers that be at all these, at these corporations. And, um, they, I think, I think it's maybe in the brief actually, you know, they talk about the fact that he isn't even given credit. Right. Um, you know, people talk about Stan Lee when you think mm-hmm. of Marvel. And I think that that's really to the chagrin of the Kirby. I mean, I, I think they feel like that's a real slap yeah, yeah. Um, to the Kirby family because, um, you know, he isn't even given credit. And so I think that there's, well, it's pretty clear that there's a, a subculture of folks that say, you know, Marvel is the house that Jack built right. to quote an article that right. I pulled from. Um, and, and so I, I, I do get that there's, there's, um, <laughs> Yeah, the, the stakes are con- ongoing, but they have financial and non-financial in- incentives. Okay, so let's put on your lawyer hat. Mm-hmm. What somebody wants to create, you know, they come up with this great idea and they want to start creating and they go to companies like, doesn't matter who it is, DC, Marvel, Image, Dark Horse, whoever. Mm-hmm. What are things that people need to be aware of or what are some things that they should do or think about if they're going and trying to create a quote unquote original work, I'm not talking about creating Batman. If you go and write a Batman story, you're not going to own Batman. Right. 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 But if they're going out and creating some new character Mm -hmm. that's included into this universe, what are some things that they need to be aware of? Well, again, don't talk about an idea. This is one of the things I tell my students. If you, and I, this is, forgive me, but this is the exact exact example I use. I, I draw on this case and I draw Mm -hmm. on the, um, notorious Facebook creation. Oh, yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's been very easy for me to, to demonstrate that example because of the movie social network. Sure. Um, so I'm, I often say, don't do a winkle boss. Mm-hmm. Don't go talk informally about this idea you have, because what is an idea? And when you, when you verbalize an idea, you've done nothing to fix it to a tangible fixed right. medium. So at, at any point that you're talking to anyone about your ideas, mm-hmm. have them fixed to some kind of thing that gives you a copyright. Sure. Because ideas have no protection. Right. So, for example, and people have brought this up a couple of times, years ago on one of the podcasts, I talk about the, this film concept idea for uh, a zombie kung fu western. <laughs> and I go into detail and tell what the story's about. Mm-hmm. Because I've expressed it, because it's been recorded, and because it's been put out into the public, mm-hmm. have I given up that idea? Um, that's, I would say you fix it to a tangible form. But, okay. but again, it, all the, the copyright attaches to is, is the expression. Right. So the idea is still by somebody else. out there. Yeah. So again, if you're talking about, you know, that's a video kind of concept. Sure. If you were trying to pitch a character, mm-hmm. I would certainly have your sketches. I would have your the descriptions of those kinds of things. Um, but as much as anything, before I... Um, before I sat down with anyone, I would have a contract in place okay. that said, you know, that you understand that these are my ideas, that you agree that, you know, I would, I would express the scope of the discussions, the extent to which you intend to retain all mm-hmm. rights. Um, and this doesn't extend just to the creation of a, of, of a character, you know, drawings, but it also extends to a script. You know, people mm-hmm. should... Copyright their script, register yes. it with the uh, uh, the Writers Guild. Mm-hmm. Um, they um, and this goes for authors who are trying to do their own indie books, right? I mean, they don't mm-hmm. want to just try to shop it around. They want to make sure that it's it's protected before they go to a publisher, right? And and you've raised a couple of things like just because you have a copyright mm-hmm. um, and that the right you can attach the right at creation. There's not a requirement that you register it like a patent. You don't right. have a patent until the government approves it right. and says that you have a patent. Right. And um, similarly, you know, you can, well, trademarks can be either registered or not registered. But 
um, you know, copyrights, you have the right as an author to attach it at its creation. Mm -hmm. So you decide when it's been created, and, and even if it's not complete, you can attach copyright to something that's not a complete sure. work. And um, you don't even have to, I mean, you don't. You said you don't have to file it. You just have to no. write copyright, your yeah. name, and the date. The nice thing about doing what you've talked about, which is, you know, filing it with the guilds or, or doing whatever, is that you've put the no world on notice that right. it's yours. Right. Now, the thing is, is once you put the world on notice that it's yours, you've also, you've all also shared it. Mm -hmm. um, and so, you know, I, I suppose some people would say that there's a risk benefit to putting it out there too widely because then somebody could either take it and change it slightly mm -hmm. so that it's like yours but not well and that's the same. And, and that's probably part of the problems with a lot of the uh, uh, copyright claims in Hollywood mm -hmm. where you know studios um, production companies won't even look at your script unless it's it's been registered right uh, because okay. they want to protect yeah. themselves because you know they may be receiving just because of the way I forget what it's it's not zeitgeist but it's just the the idea that there may be 50 other people who are coming up with the exact same idea that you are simultaneously. And because we don't go with your idea and have gone with somebody else's, you know, it kind of, it, they want that, that level of protection uh, mm -hmm. there as well. So copyright your work, copyright your work to the extent that you can have any kind of agreement that makes it explicit that you are, that, that defines mm -hmm. um, the relationship and the conversations that you're going to have with someone. I think that that is, um, of best practices. Mm -hmm. Now, that's not always realistic. Some people won't sit down with you if you're right. sitting down and saying, yeah. I want to take a look at this, but first I want your agreement that you're going to sign. I mean, there's certain practical limitations, even in a best practice world. Right. Um, but to the extent that, you know, you've done the most you can to protect yourself, I think that those are, those are the, the two most fundamental. Um, and, and anything that you would write about an agreement, um, you know, you can also, you'll, you'll see an increasing number of people who are putting some other kind of disclaimer or notice along with their copyright mm -hmm. um, at the foot, footer of mm -hmm. the document. Um, and so to the extent that you do anything that explains that this is not a work for hire. Right. Um, obviously, in the light of the Jack Kirby case and the precedent that's coming out of the federal circuits, um, doing whatever you can to make it clear the nature of whether this is work for hire or not is going to be significant. Yeah. Um, and so, you know, I would, I would certainly advise to the extent that you make it clear that you are not an employee. This is not within work for hire. This is not, um, you know, whatever conversations you're having with somebody that you're pitching this to that, um, that this is entirely independent contractor, not right. you know, not an employee. Right. Um, I would certainly drop as many of those as I could in there. So can, I don't know all the legalese. I've got a fairly good idea of, of the way of, of some legal ebbs and flows, but I don't know all of, I don't know all of this in detail. So I'm not going to draw up my own contract. I need to get a lawyer. And do I just pick up the phone and call any old lawyer on the, on the street? No. Do I pick, I mean, there's, <laughs> you laugh. <No. laughs> well, that's the thing. It's just yeah. like people don't understand. You just can't call up a lawyer and say, hey, because my sister's a lawyer. You're a lawyer. I know a lot of, I know a couple of the lawyers. I've talked to my sister before. I'm like, hey, do you understand copyright law? She's like, well, I understand to the extent of what it is and what it does. And I understand how to read a contract and, and look at contracts. I can tell you when you have a contract. And I can, yes, exactly. And, but then I say, well, do you know somebody in your company? that deals with this particular area. No, nobody in our company deals with this stuff. You need to go to this group. Mm -hmm. So how do we know what kind of lawyer we need to look for? You're going to certainly look for, um, 
you know, and, and lawyers will say something like they do contracts. Mm-hmm. So you may look on somebody's website and see, oh, they do contracts and they do um, intellectual property that that probably this firm should do be it. Mm-hmm. Um, even as we've talked about copyright, we've talked about, um, we've only talked about the provision of the copyright law yeah. that you can revoke. Right, right. And this whole thing about work for hire. Right. You know, there is easily as a minefield of cases going on right now about distribution and mm-hmm. infringement mm-hmm. and fair use. And so I would certainly, to the extent that you are able, I would not look for simply somebody who's, who says they do intellectual property even. Okay. I would even be cautious about looking for someone who says they do copyright. Okay. Um, because again, those are, those are just enormous fields. I would certainly be tailored in my requests. I would, I would look for, um, and and there are, there are media specializing. Sure. I mean, there are attorneys that specialize in media and entertainment. Right. Kinds of law. I would find someone like entertainment law, entertainment law, um, because they are going to be able to, um, they deal in this industry. So mm-hmm. it's not just that. They also charge at the same rate as the industry yeah, charges. <laughs> That's probably very true. Um, but they are going to, their practice is going to be much more dynamic to what's really going on here. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think that that would probably serve, serve someone better than anything else. So what, what do you, you think the Supreme court is going to hear this case? You know, um, <clears throat> They're, the climate is a curious one. I really think they will. The fact that they talked about it in conference, mm-hmm. even though there hasn't been that circuit disagreement that usually precipitates them hearing the right. case. Um, when you look at who some of these friends of the court briefs are coming from, mm-hmm. they are coming from um, people who worked in the patent and trademark mm-hmm. office mm-hmm. under prior uh, mm-hmm. presidential administrations. They are coming from um, very very credible people who are making some very valid claims. And, and they're basically saying, you guys need to look at this. You really need to look at this. Um, and, and so I and do you think part of that also has to do with the recent uh, Washington Redskins trademark issue too? Do you think that, I mean, granted trademarks, they're two separate mm-hmm. things. Do you think that you're talking about the climate? Do you mm-hmm. think that's also playing a part in, in this? I do. I do. And then, um, but as I say that, I will also say that the Aereo decision that yes. came down a few days mm-hmm. ago, um, that was uh, a no-brainer on the one hand, but then a kind of a head-scratcher on the other. Um, and for your listeners who aren't familiar with the Aereo case, the Aereo case is basically um, cloud VCR. Right. Um, Aereo is a company that had figured out a way for um, you to elect to record a mm-hmm. broadcast kind of program, um, but instead of programming it to your VCR, you have a service with this enterprise and they store it for you in the cloud. Yeah. And then they make it available to you for, so for your replay. Um, instead of pushing play on your VCR at home, though, you could watch it from your phone, your iPad, wherever you were. Right. So not in your home. Right. And um, But in, in terms of what they were really doing, they were capturing broadcasts, mm-hmm. not unlike anything that we've traditionally done with a VCR. Mm-hmm. Um the uh, broadcasters said that's against the law. That's just, that's copyright infringement. Right. And it went up to the Supreme Court, and the Supreme Court agreed. Yeah. And that was, you know, you'll see Aereo. If they're not out of business today. Oh, they, they shut down. Yeah, they're done. They, they shut down. They're done. Uh, 
everything, I think. Yeah, so we have to regroup and reformulate. Yeah, you're they're, done. They're and, finished. Um, and I'll be honest, that was um, kind of kind of a surprise for me. I mean, that was mm-hmm. a that was a, I didn't expect that temperature to come out of the Supreme Court on that issue because um, I, again, it was very easy for me to liken that right. to the VCR. And through disruptive well, innovation, I've embraced that yeah. the VCR is done. Disruptive innovation, but also because they were Spoiler. capturing only over the air. Yes. They weren't pulling, you know, yes. FX Network or HBO and doing that. It was only what was over the air in New York and Arizona and yes. was it California? They had yes. one spot. So so, major markets. Yeah. And, you know, when you're talking about over the air, you're talking about public spectrum. Mm-hmm. Um, so that's why we have public broadcast in the right. first place is to provide publicly available content. And, and so, again... The same things that allowed the VCR to be lawful, mm-hmm. you, again, you were making a copy of something. Right. And that was the whole thing is, well, a VCR is making a copy of something. And that so was could that dis- could the Aereo decision then change DVRs? Could that impact um, DVR at all or not? I, I can't, again, because the Aereo case was so specific to broadcast. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I, I think right now the – I'm I guess I should say I'm not aware of any – Litigation about whether DVR has been proven lawful or not lawful. I'm not right. sure it's been tested. Well, but I know that um, you know a lot of uh, link baiting websites were like Supreme Court rules against stereo. This means the end of DVRs and VCRs forever. And it's like I don't think that's what that means. No. And people are just overhyping a decision that says, "Hey, you can't recapture and playback over the web mm-hmm. and over the air broadcast exactly. in this and way." That's really all it all it is. Right. Um, you know, I'm more concerned with the. Signal it sends to innovation. Yeah, 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 yeah. Don't do it or you're going to get power. Yeah. You know, so do you, it, if the Supreme Court decides to hear this Kirby case, mm-hmm. do you think that they'll favor go in favor of, of Disney, or, which owns Marvel, mm-hmm. or do you think that they will side with the Kirby case? Yeah, yeah I really am not. I, I think it depends on the standard of law that they – I think it really goes back to whether they are going to – because, again, the Supreme Court can only look at – um, issues on appeal. Yeah, has see if there the was law been, wrong. Yeah, has yeah, an so error in the application yeah. of law been made? And so when I look at it through that lens, um, I think that if they take it up, it's really going to be based on that notion that there is more than one standard mm-hmm. that could have and should have been applied in this case, mm-hmm. and if those weren't even considered. Oh, so and so think- I, if, if it, I can see it being remanded, so they're going to kick uh, it back down to the lower court I, I and say, that. you guys need to reevaluate this. Uh-huh. I can see that. Um, but but it will be interesting because I um, you know, I don't know that they would simply say that the instance and expense doctrine was applied wrongly. Mm-hmm. I don't think you can look at that and say that that was a bad application right. based on those facts um, of that doctrine. So I think it's really going to be that they look at whether the right, the correct standard was applied. But they're not um, going to tell you, they're not going to tell the lower court which standard they should follow. They're just going to go back and say, follow this or Um, reconsider these. They could. Um, uh, But I think, I think, uh, you know, like I said, it's it's so hard to armchair quarterback the Supreme Court because I've got <laughs> I've got a bad I've got the last two wrong. <laughs> so, oh, you thought that they were going to favor inside of Ariel? Uh, I really did. Really, I really did. Um, I got it wrong, and so, uh, but uh, and I also, you know, I thought the Spectrum case a couple of years ago. Yeah, the when, uh, Light Square case. I got that one wrong. When might we know if they're going to hear this? I think not? you'll. Um, I need to look that timeline up, but I was thinking that they had 60 days. I'm not okay. sure why I remember that. I don't know if I read that somewhere, but 
Um, I think you'll know by fall whether they're going to take it up or whether they're going to. And they do have to, if they're going to deny cert, they, they do have to. They have to tell you why. They do have to deny cert. They don't have to tell you why. Now that, but you'll know that they've denied it. So it's not. That but once the Supreme Court them. denies it, that's it, right? It's I mean, done. you can't go back up to them again and say, hey, come on. No, it's okay. done. Now, somebody else could. I mean, so we could see sure. this through a different litigation. Sure, from another same, character. Yeah, Great. slightly different facts. Okay. Um, you know, you could maybe see a different run at that. Because I, I, I like I'm the surprised that the I'm surprised that the Siegel and the Schuster case did. I mean, it's almost the it, not quite, but it's almost mm-hmm. the same concept and idea that's going on here. Why that one didn't make it up to the Supreme Court before, or if it, I don't remember if they did take it up uh, that far. And now this is another way of going through that. Yeah, I and I honestly don't remember, but I do like the facts of the Jack Kirby case. Again, when you look at the the, the endorsements that sure, were on the, the back checks. of the mm-hmm. checks and and those kinds of things, I think that they really go to supporting that a different standard of how you characterize that relationship should have been applied. Yeah, yeah. That it should have not just been the ins- instance and expense standard, um, and that it should have been looked at through a number of different evaluations of whether you characterize someone as an employee. And um, so I really like, I think these are good facts. If the Supreme Court is going to get a bucket of facts to look at, um, this would be a good one. Cool. Well, thank you, so, Melissa, for, right, well, thank for you. sitting down with it's us today. Pleasure. And, you know, maybe in, when this uh, case, if it does, if the Supreme Court does decide to hear it, you and I, I want to sit down with you again. And uh, I know that uh, very soon, uh, here at Fort Hayes State University, you're going to have somebody else who's uh, heavily involved in the entertainment industry. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And I want to see about getting him on the show, too, because he knows a lot of these exact same things from the entertainment side of, of what to look at. Yeah. So. And, you know, even though I sit here in landlocked Kansas and speculate on <laughs> entertainment media, I do think that he will be, um, you know, when we talk about best practices right, right. and I talk about, well, this is what you ought to do. Mm-hmm. I think that he will offer some really valuable perspectives on, yeah, that is what you ought to do, but you can't. Yeah, and yeah. so this is what you do instead. Right. And no lawyers don't love that you do it this way, but this is sometimes how you just have to get business done. And so I think that he'll offer a really um, interesting perspective for you. Right. Excellent. Great. Thank, Thank you. you. Yep. There you go, everyone. Thank you for downloading. Thank you for listening. Thank you for sharing this episode with a friend. I hope this was interesting to you. Use the comment section over at Majorspoilers.com and let us know what you think about this episode. Melissa's a great person. I've known her for years, and uh, she really has a good understanding, and I'm glad that she uses cases like this Kirby case, like the uh, Siegel and Schuster case. Uh, she's been using those in her law and policy classes for years to talk about copyright and talk about the problems of this. So she's familiar with the case, and if and when the Supreme Court makes a decision – We'll get her back on the show and maybe even a more formal, more cleaner uh, situation, not a big empty office space to talk more about this. Podcast at Majorspoilers.com. That's where you want to send your questions, your comments. I think I mentioned that already. If not, there it is again. We read everything. We don't always respond to everything, but I do read every message that comes in. My email box fills up to about 400 emails a day, which is fine. Some of it's junk mail, some of it's spam, but I do read everything. And uh, oftentimes I will get back to you or we'll tuck it away for a future episode like next week. Next week should be a Q&A episode. Maybe we'll do some reviews and some other things as well. But until then, keep reading comics because we know that you love them and we do too. And we will talk with you soon. Bad the X-ray vision of a Superman. I could save a few bucks and stand around and read through the covers of the comics on the stand. But although every other page would be backwards, I suppose, I could still read the evens and the odds. Well, I don't know. Guess I haven't thought this all the way through. Plus, as soon as the comic book store guy knew, it came.
kicked my butt out on the corner. What a major spoiler. What a major spoiler. Way. If I was hulking green or gray, I could just bust through that brick wall, take their comic books away. But then the little meat would deal with all the tanks and bombs and guns. Have you ever tried to read a series with all that going on? Guess I need to rethink this plan. How would I back and board my comics with such huge chance? Guess I already told ya. What a major spoiler. What a major spoiler. Yeah, yeah, yeah. What a major spoiler. It's like a man of iron I might not be surprised to find That I might actually have the heart cold To follow an entire storyline But would I really even need To read upon all those escapades I mean, who needs such distractions When your sister's such a babe But the downside is such a beast Being shot up in a fine be in the Middle East With a king sign throwing soldier What a major spoiler What a major spoiler Yeah, yeah, yeah Major Spoilers is copyright 2014. As humans, we're naturally driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search. Match. With Indeed, when I was looking to hire someone, it was so slow and overwhelming. I wish I had used Indeed. If you need to hire, you need Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And Indeed doesn't just help you hire faster. 93% of employers agree Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other job sites, according to a recent Indeed survey. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com podcast. That's Indeed.com podcast. Terms and conditions apply.